Arts and Literature Laboratory and Middleton Community Development Authority present the Middleton Jazz Festival and grand opening of the Stone Horse Green with a special two-day event Friday, Saturday, October 7 and 8. The celebration kicks off with our annual Friday Night Strollin' Neighborhood Jazz Crawl in venues throughout downtown Middleton, including the Mustard Museum, Villa Dolce, Louisiana's Middleton Senior Center, and the Stone Horse Green. On Saturday, the festivities will include more live jazz, along with family arts activities, dancing, and the opening ceremony. A full listing of the performers and their venues can be found at artlitlab.org. Arts and Literature Laboratory and Middleton Community Development Authority present the Middleton Jazz Festival Friday, October 7 and Saturday, October 8. This is WORT 89.9 FM Madison and WORTFM.org. Welcome to WRT 89.9 FM, Perpetual Notion Machine. Hi, PNMers. My name is Anita, and today I'm enjoyed, joined by the renowned author Elise Vernon Perlstein. We're going to explore the world of sense, um, how they differ and how they evolved over time. So, um, Elise, could you introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. My name is Elise Perlstein. I am a Former wildlife biologist, I graduated with a degree in biology and did uh, field work um, with uh, mostly animals, mostly birds, for about 13 years professionally, and um, decided to switch gears and uh, became a natural perfumer because I fell in love with essential oils and I fell in love with the fragrances and especially the stories behind them. I really enjoyed figuring out why you know, lavender smells good, or what's the story behind fragrant roses, um, and which led me to writing a book about uh, the natural history of fragrance and telling some of these stories about why plants make fragrances, because they don't do it for us. They do it for their reproduction, for their protection, and sometimes just because of where they are and what they do. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So as much as we love the scents, the scents aren't for us. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, so as you say in, in your book, um, you talk about torchwoods. And so what are torchwoods? Uh, so some of them you mentioned are frankincense, myrrh, and copal. Yes. Um, frankincense and myrrh are old world um, trees. They're, they're, kind of small, rough trees that live in um, dry, kind of harsh conditions on the Arabian Peninsula and basically the Horn of Africa, although you can find them other places. Copal is related, and it is found in Mesoamerica, um, Mexico, southern United States, actually, Brazil, and those places. And what they do is they produce a resin. Resin is different from sap. Resin runs under the bark or the skin of the tree, and it's protective. They exude it or release it when they're injured. And so frankincense especially is famous for use of the resin in religion and incense and even healing because when people will 
harvest it, they, they actually cut the bark of the tree. The resin seeps out and forms what looks like tears, clear little um, hard pieces of resin that, that have this amazing smell of, of resin. Like if you're not familiar with that, like a pine tree. Um, and sometimes they smell like citrus. Sometimes they're very smooth. Sometimes they're a little bit harsh. Sometimes there's even maybe a little bit of a floral scent in frankincense. Um, copal and myrrh are more strictly kind of what you would think of from, um, pine trees or others, very fresh and lasting and kind of stick to your skin and, you know, are really enjoyable part of the outdoors. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I know you've mentioned the frankincense and myrrh old world. Do you think they have gone back into popularity or have they just been stable over time in their sense? I um I see a lot of interest in frankincense, especially. Um, it's become more available through vendors, you know, essential oil salespeople. It's always been used in the Catholic Church. It's part of the resin, the incense that they burn. And if you've ever been in a Catholic Church, they have the big incense burner called a censer, C E N S O R, I think. And they swing it and you can see the smoke. And so a lot of people associate the smell of frankincense with religion. But um, it's, it's grown more into um, popular use, either the essential oil for um, healing and perfumery, or you know, people are, are discovering incense again, natural incenses with ingredients like frankincense and myrrh and copal. Nice. So we've talked about resin and what that means. Um, what makes an incense um, different or is it just what, you know, how it's used? Oh, it, incense, the word incense actually comes from frankincense or frankincense comes from incense. There's that relationship. Um, and so that's traditionally, I guess, what people think of. But incense can be a blend of any of a variety of things. Um, the Chinese had formulas. The Japanese had incense formulas with um, frankincense and agar wood and um, spices and sometimes florals. And they would tell stories about the incense. Um, and then... Now, nowadays, there's kind of a, I think, kind of a renaissance in making your own natural incense, taking these raw ingredients from nature and blending and, and creating, sometimes based on old recipes and sometimes new ideas. Oh, that's really amazing. So then let's go into the next section, um, fragrant woods like argo wood and salt wood. So what is the so we had torch woods we talked about those so what differs between the torch woods and the fragrant woods what is like the key characteristic there i will start with sandalwood sandalwood is a tree from australia india um, hawaii and and around there and the instead of producing a resin it produces the fragrance in its heartwood so it's a part of the sap the the fragrant ingredients are moved inward from the outside of the tree to this darker heartwood where they gather. 
And I don't know why, but Sandalwood just produces this amazing group of complex molecules that form a dark, dark heart, dark red in the, um, in the wood and they accumulate and the best sandalwood is harvested after about 40 years and distilled. Auger wood, instead of using the sap to produce the scent, well, it probably does, but it is more of a resin based on injury. Auger wood trees are again, kind of tropical, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, and those areas. And they produce a very, very dark resin deep within the wood. So it doesn't seep out. It sequesters within the wood and it's highly fragrant and sometimes very strong, but only about 10% of the trees produce that very, very valuable um, dark resin. And so it's kind of a mystery. They're, they're really endangered because people will cut down all the trees to find the 10% that might possibly have the resin. And as with a lot of other places, um, uh, clear cutting for agriculture or for cattle, climate change and other things are also causing some problems with, you know, a lot of our fragrant plants. Oh man, I didn't even. That's so, that's so interesting. Realizing that it takes time for them to get to that maturity of scent, and also people are so invested in looking for these things, they end up you know chopping all of them down. It reminds me of that Dr. Seuss book. I forget was it one of them where they cut all the trees down. Yeah, and yeah. you know you forget that you know it needs time to grow, and not every, you know not everything happens that quickly. Um, and so your book, you talk about some of these legends about, let's talk about Argerwood, for instance. Uh, I think you've touched on why it's called Black Gold in the book, but let's inform some of the people about some of the legends linked to some of these um, really fragrant woods. There's a group, and I, I, I'm not, um, in one of the countries, I think it's, um, now I'm going to forget. Anyway, there's a there's a group that lives deep within the forest called the Penan Benalui that has lived with these trees forever and they trade in the resin, but they know and they respect the trees. And so they have a whole suite of um, kind of mythologies around how to harvest. They wear dark clothes. They keep it a secret. They camp out where they are and... and trying to guard for themselves the riches of these trees. Spices have legends, you know, ambergris. Nobody knew where ambergris, which is a scented ingredient, comes from. And so some of it's mystery, some of it's people guarding the source of these uh, valuable aromatics. Um, Sometimes people just like to tell stories Mm, that's really cool. Um, just based on what these two, these fragrant ones, I'm sure they did lead to or were impacted by the, you know, the trade over, you know, trade and geography over time. People were looking for them and people are still looking for them. So that's really interesting. And in the natural world, um, how do scents prevent trees from harm? I mean, we talk about how the scent isn't really for us. So how do they prevent them from harm? 
specifically says to sequester paranoids? Um, I'm going to actually start with our uh, front lawns, our grass. A lot of people are really familiar with the smell of cut grass. It's, it's summer, it's green, it's fresh. What that actually is, is something called green leaf volatiles, which are related to the sesquiterpenoids that you mentioned from the trees. And the grass releases this fragrance when it's injured, when it's harmed. It doesn't know whether it's a lawnmower or a caterpillar that's biting and tearing at it. And so they release this fragrance in part to attract uh, protective um, insects or predators. So for example, if a caterpillar were chewing on a blade of grass, these green leaf volatiles would attract a predator that would eat the caterpillars. And so, you know, grass can't defend itself, but it can call in the defense. The other thing it does is warn other blades of grass that there are caterpillars nearby. And so the grasses that haven't even been chewed on yet can start to take the sugars and nutrients that are in their blades and, and take them downward closer to the roots to protect that resource. Trees. Yeah, trees do kind of a similar thing. They do release um, when bark beetles attack, for example, pine trees, they will release a, a complex of these green leaf volatiles plus resin. And the resin will coat the bark to kind of keep the bark beetles from coming in, but also warn the other trees and it will call in the defenses as well. Okay. That makes sense. So in a way, I mean, trees don't smell each other, but they sense each other, right? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to, how to use the words other than, you know, sensing, not really smelling, because I guess that involved the nose, but, but yeah. they're able to communicate. That's basically. really amazing. That's amazing. They're not just still there. So we mentioned a little bit about of spices. So what makes a spice? In my definition, and I've, I read a little bit, spices are usually dried. Think about the little bottles on the shelf in your kitchen, um, cinnamon and nutmeg and cloves and coriander and cardamom are usually dried. And that made them valuable for the spice trade because you could pack, you know, a lot of little black peppercorns in a bag and transport them long distance and they would maintain that flavor you know, after a year or so, most people know that your, your spices are less fresh, but they transport easily. They're small. So there's, you know, value in these smaller packages, which is different from herbs. Herbs are usually leafy green. They're best used fresh, but you know, sometimes you'll get them dried, but they just don't have the shelf life that spices do. Okay, that's really cool. So besides the taste and flavor, um, how else were spices used? Um, spices were a sign of wealth, but for some, they formed a, uh, a rite of death or funerals. Um, cinnamon was often used to preserve wealthy people and kings, we know that the Egyptians used a blend of myrrh, probably, and some other spices to preserve mummies. Um, 
perfumery. Egyptians would blend, you know, various spices, and we still use spices in perfumes. Um, so you can extract the fragrance for perfumes as well, and they add a lot of times a really nice note. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really great. Um, so I know in your book you talk about the king of spices. You may have touched on it a little bit. Um, what were some other key spices and why, I mean, we talk about why they were big because of, you know, their portability over time and how they lead to world economics and trade. But what are some of the key spices, or you know, in the old world and why was one also named the king of spices? Black pepper would have been called the king of spices. And I think mostly just because it was, it was highly available. Um, it was traded in, you know, large bulk. Um, cardamom is called the queen of spices, and um, it was a really important trade item. And interestingly, it, it comes from these spice islands in the area of um, Indonesia, the Malacca Islands. But for some reason, the Vikings, when they were sailing around the world, found cardamom and they really liked cardamom. And so it's actually a dish that is used in a lot of um, Scandinavian foods, a spice. Um, sailors would use ginger. You can easily root ginger, and that helped with um, seasickness on the boats. And so ginger was transported around in part for trade, but in part just to have on, on board to help with seasickness or, you know, making the food taste better. After saffron, vanilla, and chocolate, we went into herbs. You mentioned about what a herb is, but is there a difference between that or an, ar an aromatic and an aromatic herb? I think um, the aroma and the taste are very closely related. So when when I talk about herbs, they're also very aromatic. Lavender, for example, people will use it in cooking, but it's also very well known for um, the fragrance rosemary's kind of the same way oh that's that, that's really great um so uh, we talk about lavender we talk, mentioned lavender and rosemary um how were they used in the past i mean right now we use them in our cooking and in our smells and scents and um, what what properties were they really popular for in the past um well if we go all the way back to the romans they used it for their laundry they would put um, bits of lavender between the sheets and the and the different laundry items and the the name lavender actually comes from I think it's the Greek lavar which means wash and so it's been closely associated with cleanliness and fresh smells um, it was used lavender and rosemary both were used during the Black Death as protection against evil smells they didn't really know what caused diseases but at in prehistoric in prehistoric and early you know kind of thought good smells were thought to mean good things good th good smells were healthy they helped fight disease whereas bad smells were disease and bad things and so the the fresh and uplifting smells of lavender and rosemary helped with they thought preventing or warding off the Black Death. And these were plants that were available in most people's gardens and dooryards. And so they were accessible for people to use. 
Okay. That's really cool. Um, we still use lavender today for our sheets, I can imagine, and clothes. So that use has stayed the same. Um, and rosemary, um, definitely different beliefs and different properties for um, food and other things. So then um, we talk about gardens. So how, how have, gardens, have gardens really changed over time or have they stayed the same? What makes a garden? Um, could you enlighten us on those? I, you know, I love to think about gardens as whatever meaning it might have for each different person. You know, originally gardens were undoubtedly planted and maintained for food. But um, I, I'm pretty sure people started growing pretty things as well. Um, the Persians and the Egyptians who lived in very dry, harsh areas would create their gardens around water. They would They would make these fountains and these square ponds and then plant orange trees and jasmine and fragrant herbs uh, for their gardens and so it was it was all the senses it was the sound of water and the sight of the flowers and the smell um, and that that remained true for a long time but somewhere around the renaissance and um, the industrial revolution for some reason humans began emphasizing our sense of sight over sound and smell and touch and some of the others. And so gardens became more about appearances than about that sensual pleasure that you get from brushing against a mint plant or smelling the jasmine in the evening. And there was a, a woman named Gertrude Jekyll and she was part of the arts and crafts movement. And she was a, an English gardener and she was one of the people who was inspired by impressionist paintings and saw her gardens as visual art. And she did a lot of work with colors, um, which is gorgeous. But, you know, if anybody has tried to buy a rose in, you know, a grocery store or a nursery or somewhere, you know, they don't have a lot of smell. We have been breeding our plants and paying attention to visual rather than the sense of smell. And mm -hmm. I think that's turning around a little bit. Oh, yeah, that's true. Roses don't smell very fragrant, but they are used in um, different modes, like rose petal water or rose water in different dishes. Um, that's, yeah, that's definitely true, that they do look very pleasing, but they don't smell as fragrant as maybe, say, a lily or something like that. Um, and that's cool that that is changing. Um, you know, some of the notable gardens that we've seen, like the Versailles gardens, those were made into different ge geometric shapes and of, of, of that nature, um, given the affluence of the people who had them. Um, and I don't know if those are coming back into style. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, fragrant roses are definitely coming back. You know, there's a breeder in, in England again, David Austin, who breeds fragrant roses. Um, and I'm kind of jumping ahead in our outline, but um, fragrant roses were, um, back in the 17, 1800s, were popular for looking nice. And it wasn't until we imported, um, and I think it was both, Britain and in America started imported Chinese roses, which had a, a tea scent, like a cup of tea. And so those are called tea roses. 
or we would get the climbers that would bloom multiple times. And so um, it's a process, you know, we, we value scent and then we don't, and then we, you know, it comes around again, I think. It's like fashion. So, you know, those yeah, shorts totally. and things that we don't like come back. Um, yeah, that's really cool about um, roses. And so could we just talk about some of the performing stand, perfuming standards. Um, as you said, you are a perfumer, a natural perfumer. How have these changed over time? For almost all of history, we got our fragrance for our perfumes from nature. The Egyptians would mix flowers and spices and woods in oils to make their perfumes. Um, as you went along, um, perfume became the um, luxury of the wealthy because the wealthy were the ones that could afford the the rare flowers and the rare spices. And, and when it went to alcohol, you know, they had to have their own distiller to make alcohol and glass bottles were expensive. Um, around about the industrial revolution, a lot of pieces came together mid 1800s where you had distillation for the alcohol, for the perfume and for the essential oils becoming more common glass blowing and the making of, of perfume bottles was, was becoming more easily available. And chemists were discovering the individual chemicals that made fragrances. And so they could take um, for example, a more common, I'm trying to think of an example, um, iris, the roots of the iris have a smell that, that reminds one of violets. Violets are very, very hard to distill and get the fragrance, but if you can isolate that from an iris, for example, or science now is using rice bran and other um, non-related chemicals to isolate the molecules that make the fragrance. And that revolutionized the perfume industry because now you could find a molecule and create a perfume that didn't really have anything to do with nature. You could create a fantasy perfume. And that's where the perfume industry has kind of gone. And, you know, there are millions and millions of bottles of perfume sold every year. Perfumery is a big industry. It's related to fashion. And so the ability to use chemistry to make the fragrant ingredients makes a certain amount of sense for that large industry. I believe we are seeing a turnaround. And in, in 15 years ago, when I started natural perfumery, um, people were starting to use natural ingredients again and finding essential oils and finding wood extracts to make perfumery. Um, it's a niche market. It's an artisan effort, but um, I like to think we're going a little bit full circle. That's awesome. So you just basically look at the compound or the, I'm sorry, the molecule and build off that because as you said, fashion is such a big industry and the fragrant um, chemists um, look for those components. And we have been talking about um, essential oils since the beginning, um, just to root us into what they really are. Um, what is an essential, what are essential oils? Essential oils, the word comes from um, 
essentia or the essence of life, which translates to the essence of plants. And they're called oils because they actually float on top of water. So for example, if you take lavender, you might take, I don't know, an acre of lavender and harvest just the tops, the flowers and some of the, the soft leaves right at the very top. And you use heat and steam to extract the little tiny packets of scent that are inside the flowers and the leaves. And so you'll put them in a, um, a, a container, a big, you know, traditionally glass or copper uh, container that you, you pack the lavender flowers in and add water. And then as you heat it, steam rises. And within that steam are the little tiny molecules that are the lavender essential oils. When you cool that down, you get a blend of water and essential oil. Um, in roses, that water is rose water and it's very valuable. It's, it's, um, but then you get a little bit of rose auto on top and I'm mixing up lavender and roses, but it's all the same process. Um, lavender is the same thing. You get the essential oil on top, and that's what you um, separate out to use for perfumery or aromatherapy. Um, because you are taking huge amounts of flowers and extracting that essential oil, that's what makes them so powerful. And, you know, as a perfumer and sort of an aromatherapist, I just like to remind people that they are very powerful and, and you don't need very much to have a fragrant effect or a health effect or whatever you're using it for. Oh, that's amazing. And so one quick question I've always wondered, um, to become a perfumer, should you have a sensitive nose? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I think as much as being able to perceive different fragrances. And I, you know, I think um, a sensitive or a good nose is important. You have to train your nose. You have to spend immense amount of time smelling all the different ingredients. Um, for example, um, roses, the extracts of roses are different depending on whether they're from Bulgaria or Turkey or um, China. And so you have to, and rose smells different from gardenia, which smells different from jasmine. And so training your nose to be able to recognize the differences and the subtleties, I think is, is as important as um, having a good nose. And then persistence, careful record keeping, attention to detail. You know, there's a lot of, um, kind of nitty gritty to developing perfume and creating. Okay. That's really amazing. So thank you so much, Elise. Um, this has been WRT 89.9 FM. Um, stay on for radio literature. So thank you so much, uh, Elise. And uh, thank you for your time and your wonderful book. <laughs>